Welcome back to Sumo Observations and Conversations, a podcast by Southern Utah Museum of Art, where we talk to artists, curators, art historians, and staff about what's happening at Sumo. I'm Emily Ronquillo, Sumo's Manager of Marketing and Communication, and your host for the show. Today, I'm joined by Sumo's Assistant Director of Curatorial Affairs, Becky Bloom, and longtime supporter, volunteer, and passport president, Joanne Bratton. We're talking about The Space Between, Visions of the Southwest, exhibited at SUMA now through September 24th. The Space Between brings together works from four artists who represent the past, present, and future of abstract art forged in the creative crucible of the desert. Louis Reebok and Beatrice Mandelman, the groundbreaking forces behind Taos modernism, and Arlo Naminha and Shali Cooper, two exciting contemporary artists who embody the enduring legacy of their predecessors and the new visions emerging from the environment. We encourage you to listen to this episode as a precursor to your visit to establish a deeper connection to your art. Becky mentions in this interview that this is different for a lot of SUMA visitors, that we haven't really exhibited works like this before. So we hope that this gives you some context. Thanks. So welcome, Becky and Joanne. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today and to talk about the space between Visions of the Southwest. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Becky, can you help us, those of us who maybe stopped understanding art at the Impressionist era, (laughs) how to appreciate the abstract art that we see in SUMA now? Yeah. So I think kind of the beauty of abstract art is that because it is not figural, it employs shapes and color and composition, that it is an artist's or many artists attempt at making their work expressive of their own feelings and visions, but also to employ a more universal language, right? If we think about traditional arts being religious or kind of more about nobility. It's really reserved the symbolic language, the narrative language of those, even though we can identify humans, right, mostly, or at least gods, you know, Greek or Roman gods or divine beings or saints in human form. Your average person historically is not going to understand all the levels, most of us even today, right, are not going to understand the levels of symbolism that these portraits or religious images contain. Abstract art is kind of breaking things down into their formal qualities. So when we think of formal qualities, it's about shape color, composition, or space, the use of negative and positive space. And so I think the best way to begin to understand it is to just kind of feel it, not literally, obviously we don't touch things in the museum, but to feel it kind of emotionally and sensorially about the color. Are the colors bright? Are they muted? Are you using red, which I think universally means more maybe aggressive or um, if it's more muted, blues, cooler colors. What might the artist be trying to express? What feelings and emotions might they be trying to express using those colors and shapes? And so I think it's about relating to an artist kind of just on a human level And it may be totally off, but that's kind of the beauty of it, that it's the artist expressing him or herself 
but also trying to evoke feelings in the viewer. Thank you. So what influences or inspires these artists? So we have Mandelman and Reebok, and they... Louis Reebok and Beatrice Mandelman, who were a married couple who moved to New Mexico in 1944 from New York. And so they're coming out of, interestingly enough, a realist tradition. So that means, right, we should also say modern art is a very diverse body or movement. It's hard to even yeah, define it in singular terms because it begins in like the 1860s in Europe with Manet. We think about, as you mentioned, Joanne, the Impressionists, but still not quite abstraction the way that we see it in Mandelman and Reebok. But within this body of modern art, we also have realists. So those artists who are using figures, right, identifiable figures and forms in a more realistic style. And so Mandelman and Reebok are part of what's called a social realist, which is using realist art to express political or social messages. They were very politically and socially active. And a lot of it has to do with the elevation of the working class, part of sort of labor movements. And then they moved to New Mexico and start kind of experimenting with landscapes and moving toward abstraction as sort of inspired by this vast, dramatic, sort of extreme landscape of northern New Mexico. You can think about how the light, just if you've ever spent any time in the desert, the play of light and shadow and scale, these big skies and big rock formations, how it has even this abstracted quality with our own sensory or visual experience in nature. So, but they are not, even though they're sort of geographically removed, and even today Taos feels very remote, it was extra remote <laughs> in the 1940s, but they are not intellectually, artistically, or politically isolated. So they are still connected to artist friends and circles in New York and, and in Europe. And this kind of continues their movement into abstraction as they become more involved and more connected to what we would call abstract expressionism that kind of develops in the sort of 40s into the 50s. We think of Jackson Pollock, maybe his splatter art or the color fields of Mark Rothko. The definition is kind of in that title. It's this use of abstraction to express oneself. So these, the movement of the paint, the use of large scale of, of incorporating movement, uh, the bo little, literal bodily movement into the creation of art, but really about evoking feeling and expressing feeling through this more universal, universalizing, more democratized, we can say, abstract language that doesn't require one to have like foreknowledge of symbols or forms, but really just to kind of feel it. So Mandelman and Reebok are very much impacted by and influenced by these movements of the mid-century out of New York and maybe the earlier part of the 20th century out of Europe. Beatrice Mandelman, or B. Mandelman, that's her nickname, B. Uh, goes to France to study with Fernand Leger, who not to name drop, but that is, I guess, a pretty well-known modern artist. And while she's in Paris, she's learning about Mondrian. She's hanging out with Matisse. So absorbing all of these sort of current 
contemporary movements and artists who are all, I mean, we call them movements now. And there were artist groups with me- It's always great to have manifestos because they really outlined their goals and their intentions. But she's really just, they're really just kind of hanging out with friends and absorbing everything and then translating it into this, their own unique style that brings in these Southwestern influences in terms of color palette, kind of the, what I call the primary palette of the desert rather than just red, you know, yellow and blue. They are more vermilion and this bright sky blue. And also incorporating some maybe figural elements drawn from indigenous traditions that they were surrounded by and definitely interested in investigating. Um, So we can see those influences kind of, yeah, mixing in their their work. And I think you said there were a couple of pieces that really tied nicely to the other exhibition in Summa, which is the one about the march from Selma to Montgomery. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, like I said, Beatrice Mandelman and Louis Reebok were po- very politically active in their younger years. Definitely part of sort of early communist activities in New York, which then they kind of distanced from as communism in under Stalin kind of took a very violent and authoritative turn in Russia. So their politics kind of shifted a bit. But the point is that they, and this is reflected, right, as I mentioned, in their social realist art, this centering of of working class people, of everyday people, which is also very much trademark. A, a quality of modern art is shifting the subject matter, as well as the intended audience away from the elite. I mean, you think about museums also are born around the era, uh, or public, the public art museum, rather than private kind of noble or princely collections, which were very much reserved for the elite. Like, they aren't inviting everyday people into their palaces. Now the palaces are open, right, as museums. But in you know, it's not a coincidence that the birth of the public art museum kind of coincides with the birth of modern art as we know it. And it's about making art available to the average person and also representing the average person in, in art, which was, seems very obvious now, but was revolutionary at the time. And social realist art is really about representing workers in particular. And so, like I mentioned, even though they moved to Taos for various reasons, part of which it seems they were being investigated by the FBI for their leftist and communist activities, right? This is just at the beginning of the 1950s of the McCarthy era. Reebok also, he was drafted for World War II, had asthma. So I think there are a variety of reasons why they moved to Taos, um, health-related and maybe sort of personal politics-related but they were not isolated politically. And of course, it would be difficult to feel, to be completely isolated sort of at the beginning of the 1960s when there are so many social movements coinciding. You have the civil rights movement, you have the women's liberation movement, you have the Vietnam War raging and the various anti-war actions. And Beatrice Mandelman in particular is very quotable in the way and very articulate in the way that she describes how her abstract art versus her more social realist art, which had a very more, a, 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 
also political messaging, but in a very different artistic style, right? Realism versus abstraction. How she used this new abstract language that she had developed as a, a, a way to express the very big feelings and reactions to this era of upheaval in American society, in, in world history that was violent, but also um, really reflects human um, resilience and integrity and love. So at, at once she is in her abstract art, using it as a way to express her reactions and also interestingly to kind of retreat from it rather than this sort of figural, the, all the imagery that you have to imagine in the 1960s on the nighttime news of, of war, of, of protest, of violent um, reactions to protests, and the way that that abstraction becomes her tool um, to manage all these feelings and emotions and reactions. And then the other tool that she uses is collage. So literally taking ripping the headlines <laughs> from the newspaper and creating these beautiful compositions that use you know found imagery from periodicals as well as using color so bringing in an element of abstract art and other images in these compositions that have kind of evocative names like the man um, is one piece in our show. Some of her other collages that are in other collections have more obvious or, um, yeah, not as opaque names um, about anti-war um, or women's liberation. But it's also a way for her to react to, respond to, and evoke reactions and feelings in her viewers through this um, other form of abstract art, which has been used since Picasso. Um, and at the time, we think of Robert Rauschenberg and this idea of assemblage, this use of collage, but really assembling found materials in new compositions as a way to express one's feelings. So there is this kind of serendipitous, but very useful overlap that we have between the photojournalism of Matt Heron and his photos documenting the march um, from Selma to Montgomery, the maybe the most important march of the civil rights movement. And then you have these interesting examples of an artist living in that time using this abstract language that she's developed to react to an event, that event and others like it. Thank you. And then we also have two contemporary artists. So first, before we talk about the artists, maybe what's the difference? What was the evolution, I guess, from modern to contemporary? Yeah, this is a kind of a hard question. I've been bringing it up around the office because actually my husband brought this up. Like, what's the difference? And it's easier to talk about when does modern art as we know it begin? And we, anybody who's ever taken like a, basic survey art history class learns that it begins in the 1860s with like Manet and Monet and the Impressionists. But where does it end? It's like a generational thing. Like Beatrice Mandelman, for instance, was working into her 80s, right into the 80s, the 1980s. And so is was that contemporary or is she modern because she falls under this category of modern art? But like I said, if anybody goes on the Wikipedia page uh, for <laughs> modern art, you can just see 
all like a huge list of all the different movements that fall under this larger umbrella, but where does it end? When we think about it generationally, I was thinking maybe in the 80s where we think of Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. They're very much street artists inspired by graffiti or now we call it street art at the time. I'm sure they weren't calling it that. But was that now the beginning? Is it now postmodern? Of course, modernism and postmodern, these are these sort of, again, these umbrella terms that apply not just to visual art, but to film and literature and all the sort of sub-movements between. So it's kind of difficult to understand, even for me, where modern art ends. If it just means like now those artists have passed away, now it's 30, 40 years after, or what was once contemporary now becomes modern because they're no longer active or they're no longer alive. This is a more complicated question. Can we call it postmodern, post-postmodern? I'm sure that there are lots of debates about this. But what I can say, the way that we're defining it in this exhibition, at least, is contemporary artists are those who are alive and working today. So Shalee and uh, Shalee Cooper and Arlo Naminha are both active artists working in sort of the Southwest Mountain West region. But where we would you know, in 20 years, would we then define them as modern art? I, I don't think so. Maybe postmodern. It's hard to say. Or they'll get, you know, kind of put in this other category of, oh, they were Southwest artists or something like this. So I feel like historians in general and certainly art historians like to have these nice little categories that we can organize history in logical and digestible ways, but that's sort of a, a long answer to a no answer. <laughs> so talk about their art then, first Shalee and then, and then our Native American artists. Yes, so Shalee Cooper, um, her background is black and white photography, which I think is evident in her use of a very minimalist palette, right? She works on raw canvas with raw black gesso. So it makes it very difficult actually to handle because they haven't been protected using materials. So I know that our art handlers had to be very careful in putting her um, canvases up because it's very susceptible to fingerprints and smudging. Um, actually, weirdly, in a way like photographs. But what she also sort of the, we can think of Mandelman and Reebok having this transitional period, right? They went from this sort of realist styles to abstraction, but it wasn't sudden. They were experimenting sort of through more abstracted landscapes inspired by the Taos environment. So it wasn't just like a, today I'm only going to use primary colors and shapes. There is a, an evolution in their work. And likewise with Shalee. She, and, and also with Arlo Naminha, which we can talk about too. But she was exploring photograms, which many of us might have done in like elementary school art class, right? Using the technology and kind of the chemistry of photography and, and really photographic paper. So if any of you remember putting you know, having the paper and putting leaves or sticks, right, and exposing it and then developing it. I had an art kit like this. So this is a way to kind of use photographic technology, but without sort of figures. It's kind of this hybrid form, bringing in abstraction. Man Ray, 
I'm going to selectively name drop, but he is a famous photographer who was also in sort of early 20th century experimenting with photograms. And so you can see easily how you can move from black and white photography in a traditional sense to experimenting with photograms, playing with composition and shape using photographic technology, right? And then kind of transferring that into a painted medium that employs black shapes on a, a white or whitish negative space. So she also is very interested in playing with orientation and space and composition in a sort of collaborative sense. In other words, her paintings are often can be hung uh, vertically or horizontally depending on how you want. She's got works like we have in the show called Possibility, one called Grounded, that have multiple, either two and up, um, canvases that can be arranged in different ways that creates this kind of collaboration between the artist and the collector or the curator that she might say, hang it this way, but then I can hang it a totally different way, and it creates this kind of dialogue. And that's something that Arlo Naminha also does. Some of his um, sculptures, which we feature in the show, can be um, displayed in different arrangements. And he also articulates it in a similar way as Shalee, that this is about kind of collaboration and dialogue about multiple artistic perspectives, um, being able to coexist. Um, that the the artist and and we can really translate this too actually to as we were talking about with how to understand abstract art it's like the artist is giving you the tools for, to understand to uh, the sh the kind of colors and shapes and composition that they want that are they're using to express their feelings but also hoping to evoke feelings in the viewer and and that it's out of their hands. And in a way, that's what Shalee and Arlo Naminha are doing, are giving, you know, the artist has this foundational idea, um, intention, and creation that then, once it's displayed or once it becomes in the collection of a private collector or kind of in the hands of a curator, it can be manipulated in a new way and take on new meaning or new form. And so I think this is how we can also connect the, these different abstract languages or methods um, among the four artists are too modern and are too contemporary is this idea of, of the artists, yeah, giving us their art and allowing us to kind of interpret it as we, as we shall. And, um, and then Arlo Naminga has a very beautiful way of taking it a step further, how this sort of symbolizes not just artistic exchange or perspective, but also this larger meaning of, of coexistence in the world and multiple, you know, diversity of people, of beliefs, of perspectives and interpretations kind of coexisting, especially through dialogue. And talk about how his sculptures fit together, because I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so as, if you visit the show, you might notice that they look almost precariously stacked. <laughs> These beautifully hewn rocks. They're smooth in some places, rough in others, and these beautiful 
yeah, compositions, but especially the ones that are stacked or fit together like a jigsaw, they, one of the pleasures of putting together this exhibition or certainly installing it was being, I was able to participate as an art handler. Um, we're kind of an all hands on deck staff. And I was able to put them together and understand how they are not, they are hewn, I think is the right word, worked in a way that they fit together almost like a tongue and groove. I'm married to a carpenter, so I think in wood terms, but that they're these little, you know, positive, so like a convex piece that fits in this so subtly carved out concave bit on the piece below. Because at first we were like, how do we know which piece goes where and it became abundantly clear because they are so beautifully worked to fit and yet pardon my pun allow these little spaces between to <laughs> to uh, appear many people come in to these kinds of spaces and they see especially something like Shelley's work they're like this is where's the skill in this you know and I, I often say it maybe is not the kind of classic skill set of being able to paint a wonderfully realistic portrait. The, the creativity, the ingenuity and genius is in the concept. And, but I think with Arlo's sculptures, Arlo Naminha's sculptures, is that you see the, the strength of the concept, but also the real strength in the technique of, of masonry, of, of stonework that maybe isn't so obvious to the, your casual viewer, but I was able to really experience. And I want to tell everybody about how beautifully these pieces are worked and polished. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I want to touch them, and I know I, I can't. Know. <laughs> I know that's a hard thing is because they do scream, touch me, because they're so smooth, and then so, but so deliberately in other areas, rough. But we just have to absorb these textures and imagine them with our eyes. But it's interesting, too, because he is from the Tewa Hopi community of New Mexico, and his earlier sculptural work, he's also from a family of well-known indigenous artists, his father, I think his great uncles and aunts. So his earlier work mostly has more um, apparent or recognizable Native American of the Southwest imagery, particularly Kachina dolls. Beautifully, again, hewn, stone, polished, but much more recognizable for anybody who knows anything about Southwest indigenous art. And he's now moved similarly to our other artists into this abstract, this geometric abstraction, but you can see the hints of kind of Kachina imageries, particularly their slitted eyes or faces, the, the kind of rounded faces or heads, if, and the, the suggestion too of Pueblo dwellings. So it's this interesting way that he's also moved from a more figural or more recognizable form and how he has abstracted that using the sort of abstract or geometric abstraction developed in the mid-century and has taken it in its own direction, engaging symbolism, forms, beliefs from his own indigenous 
culture. And so that's kind of the beauty of, of the legacy of modernism is how it can be ad- not just adapted for the viewer, but different artists can adapt it to their own purposes, their own intentions. And he has some wood pieces as well, which are equally interesting. Yes, he has these wall hangings, still quite sculptural. I wouldn't quite call them two-dimensional, but they aren't like walk around in three dimensions. They hang on the wall and they are used different, like horizontally stacked pieces of woods with different kind of wavy texture within this black aluminum frame. You can envision them being bird's eye view of like from an airplane of fields or just uh, topographic elements on one hand, if you kind of view it that way, or you can see it as this sort of vertical cross-section of sky, cloud, mesa, earth, and again, kind of reflecting um, the belief system, the understanding of the natural world, of heaven, earth, people land within his indigenous yeah belief system which i can't speak much to the specifics but i know that these um particular this body of work that he has done using the wood is this yeah this topographical this elevation kind of cross-section of the layers of heaven and earth which i think are really really beautiful so if you If we think about the four artists that we have in the show, how would you differentiate between their different styles? That's a great question because we call them, we refer to them all as abstract because they're not really using identifiable figurative forms. We have one piece of Reeboks. We're very lucky to have um, this landscape right representing this transitional period as they moved from realism into full abstraction. But Mandelman and Reebok, despite sharing a house, sharing a life as a married couple, I think clearly sharing paints, you can see that in the exhibition, like they're definitely, hey, can I borrow that cool peach pigment? And sharing friends that they are also developed very different um, abstract styles. So we would say, I've been saying, that Reebok has this more loose painterly quality. So you can see the brush strokes more evidently. They're more calligraphic. He's also inspired by sumi-e, which is a Japanese form of art that uses black ink on white fabric, uh, probably silk or some kind of linen. And it's a way to evoke shape, evoke yeah, image by just using black lines and then the the shape kind of emerges from the negative space. So a great example, we have this beautiful large format painting. Louis Reback also very unhelpfully um, titles his paintings untitled or simply yellow and white. So this is one of the, the paintings that has a useful title for viewers. It's called Canyon Series. And it's this beautiful series of these vertical and horizontal, just brush strokes. And you can, you look at it long enough and the canyon walls, especially for those of us living in the Southwest, living in canyon country, you can imagine, you just see the the walls of a slot canyon kind of emerge. So I would call his a more painterly 
abstraction, very much similar to works of, I don't know, Kandinsky or Paul Clay. It's just more painterly. Whereas Beatrice Mandelman, definitely aside from her collages, which is a different kind of medium, her work is much more geometric, harder, more, um, yeah, harder edges. Yes, they're in some cases more, I would say, organic. She has one in our show, one of my favorites called Sea Shapes, which is definitely also a helpful and evocative title with these sort of organic foliage, maybe like coral or seaweed, and definitely reminds anybody who's familiar with um, Matisse's cutouts, these sort of leaves is definitely reminiscent of that. And that's not an accident. She was hanging out with Matisse and definitely aware of his work when she was living in Paris. And so they, her art definitely kind of moves between more organic forms and more geometric, hard-edged, overlapping too, that even in when she's not working in technical collage with different materials, like multimedia collage, her shapes kind of overlap and interact in different ways. But in a, uh, her colors are more opaque and like filled in, I would say, versus you can see where Reebok kind of, the paint runs off of his brush. And then for our, for Shalee Cooper, for sure, geometric, she's using black and white, very hard edges, very clear geometric forms. Some of them now she's moving in more um, curvaceous forms, but it's a lot of, in a way, reflective of like mesas is how I was thinking of it. We have one work called Grounded, which was inspired by a trip to New Mexico to pick up art. Um, those kinds of step forms, like almost like, I don't know, a ziggurat, who else took comparative civilization learned about step temples <laughs> but that form that is so familiar in the southwest and then Arlo Naminga kind of plays with these rounded shapes with the polished stone and the interaction between these more hard-edged squares which is an interesting play of geometry and shape and space especially where they literally a piece fits into the other piece so a play of we talk about positive and negative space. He's, in some ways, you can pull them apart and create more space, and then other arrangements can literally have them intersecting. That's great. Kind of our final question, what do you hope visitors take away from this exhibition? At the museum, we have shown such a variety of art, and I don't know if we've had this many abstract art artists in one space and time. And it can be challenging because if you don't come with this sort of arsenal of art historical experience or knowledge to kind of pick out, oh, that looks like Matisse, or I can totally see De steel style reflected in this painting. I hope to be able to give some tools through the interpretation and through the learning guides. But I, I hope that visitors kind of embrace this and take this as an, their own kind of emotional journey to explore how art in this form makes them feel. It's not necess doesn't necessarily have to be this, oh, now I understand the history of modern art or now I understand what Taos modernism is. I hope so, that's a little bit, but mostly how does this art make you feel 
and how can art make me feel things that I didn't expect rather than just recognizing, oh, this is a beautiful landscape or, oh, this is a portrait of somebody, um, a way to interact with visual art in, in a way that maybe is unfamiliar, but now gives us, gives them, gives visitors a new pathway to interacting with, with art. Yeah. I think that's great. I know in the learning guide, kind of one of the tips to kind of how to digest the exhibition and connect with the art is to really get down to that like basic childlike level, you know, kind of view it through the eyes of your inner child. Or I even got to have that experience last week where we were doing a photo shoot, seeing kids really gravitate to the exhibition and pull like inspiration for then the activity that they're doing. It was clearly one of the little boys, he had all of our like colored squares. And then he was like, I'm covering this all with white. And I was like, okay, that's a choice. And then I went into the exhibition. I was like, I see where he pulled that from, you know, that it was really resonating to kids. And so I think this is also an opportunity for adults to connect with their inner child through this art. Yeah, I think seeing art through your inner child lens or through the eyes of a child is really useful because I think as adults, we get caught up as, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to understand this. I don't know the history. I don't know what this is. And we get embarrassed or, yeah, a, a little bit afraid of our lack of knowledge. But this is an opportunity to abandon those fears, those insecurities, because this, you know, Mandelman and Reebok particularly, and I think Arlo Naminha and Shalit Kupar are inheritors of this kind of legacy. Mandelman and Reebok were also very much a part of this mid-century, mid-20th century movement of comparative mythology, right? Um, looking to, to the East cultures of the East, trying to find ways to connect with ancient cultures, with non-Western cultures. We think a lot about modern art too. Go, Picasso is going to the Ethnographic Museum to look at African masks, and we see this reflecting in, in Cubism. So this now, not just this elevation of your average person, but this elevation of what we would call folk art or non-Western art, and and seeing it as part of this larger language of humankind. And this is an opportunity to try to shed those insecurities and understand art, this kind of art, as a different way of expressing human emotion and to, to form human connection. That's great. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of SUMA Observations and Conversations. Special thanks to Joanne for the idea for this episode and to Becky for sharing her art history knowledge to help us understand the exhibition deeper. The Space Between Visions of the Southwest is on view at SUMA through September 24th, 2022. There's also a learning guide that goes further in depth about the artist's histories that's available at the museum and online. For more information about our current exhibitions and events, visit our website at su.edu SUMA or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok at SUMA underscore museum. <laughs>